I'd like us to uh, spend some time this morning, and it's uh, great, really, that today we're looking at uh, the feeding of the 5,000, as I hope you'll uh, uh, parallel that, and and we will in the sermon, I'll hope to do that in the sermon, uh, with the Lord's Supper also. But I'm going to begin this morning by going straight for the jugular, okay? And uh, I'm going to say two things just uh, to, I hope, uh, challenge us and to uh, focus uh, our minds on what we're going to be looking at. If what does sin do? I'm going to ask that question and say it does at least two things. Sin in our lives does at least two things. So I'm going for the juggler. No introduction. Straight into the uh, heart of the matter. What does sin do for us? Well, it does at least a couple of things. The first thing it does is it blinds us. We know that from the Bible, don't we? That the sin blinds us. It blinds us to the truth. It blinds us to God's word. It blinds us to the glory of Jesus Christ. So, you know, so we treat him like, kind of like anything else. He's just ordinary and plain. Doesn't really excite us, doesn't really challenge us, doesn't um, appropriate our worship because he's very plain and ordinary. His glory is hidden. Sin does that for us. It blinds us. But sin also deceives us. And, and we know that from the Bible as well, that that is clear. Um, it deceives us to think or to ignore, at least, to ignore spiritual realities. It deceives us into thinking that all that really matters is today. All that matters is my flesh and blood, my body, the material, the world in which we live. That's all that matters. It deceives us to think that what we need for happiness and for joy is for our appetites to be satisfied, our physical and material appetites, ambition, wealth, sex, uh, power, all these things, that as long as we have them then we'll be happy and contented. And sin deceives us into thinking that the material, the physical, the world, the jobs, the lives we live are all that matter. And uh, that God, if we consider God or think about God at all, he's subservient to all of these things. He's secondary. He's kind of like the puppy dog that we bring along behind us, wagging his tail. But he's not significant. He's not important. He's not the Lord of our lives because sin deceives us into thinking my life and what I do is much more important than dealing with and thinking about God in my life apart from what he can do for me. So I think these are two things that will come through and come into our sermon, into the sermon as we look at this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Why are we looking at miracles? We're looking at miracles because we recognize from the New Testament that miracles are signs. They are signs of something else. They're a reminder to us that Jesus worked miracles in this life, this kingdom, because he was thinking of his kingdom to come. And they were tasters. They were pointing forward to the world which was to come. And they were a sign of who he was and why he had come and uh, what he had come to do. In verse 14, we're told that, and John particularly, of all the gospel writers, John particularly speaks of miracles as signs, and he works through them in uh, his gospel. In verse 14, he says, after the people saw the miraculous sign, Jesus did. So he's speaking about uh, these miracles and seeing them as significant uh, spiritual markers for us. So if we were to look at uh, the signs of this miracle, uh, I would argue there's at least a couple of things that it's pointing us to as a sign. It's telling us, this miracle is telling us that things need to change. And it's telling us 
that we need to put our faith in Jesus Christ. These are two of the signs, two of the, the pointers that this miracle leads us to consider and to think about. Things need to change. The miracles, and this miracle is no different, uh, are outworked in a broken world. A world uh, of poverty, of illness, uh, of storms, uh, of uh, creation at war with itself and with humanity. The, the very next miracle, Jesus walking on the water speaks of that. Of illness, of death, of dissatisfaction. You know, that's what this world uh, in which we live, that's what it speaks of to us, uh, among other things. There are glimpses of what the world could be and what the world will be. But currently, we see that the things need to change. And the miracles are a sign of that. And Christ comes in with the answer. Not just globally, not just societally, but individually, he comes with a personal and with a global message of salvation. That in our lives, things need to change. And that we need Jesus Christ to enable us to do that. So things need to change. Miracles are a sign of that. And they're also a sign of our need for faith in Jesus Christ. So we, we need to move away from thinking of the miracles as some kind of uh, uh, popularity um, um, drive by Jesus. You know, I'll, I'll, be, I'll, I'll make myself very popular if I do these miracles. That actually did happen. But that wasn't the purpose of them. They made him popular for a while. But he, he didn't do them in order to be popular. He didn't do them to show that he was some kind of magic man. And he didn't do them uh, to manipulate people to be followers of him because he had this power or this ability over nature and over humanity and over the world in which we live. But all of them point forward to his work of salvation, point forward to redemption, and point forward to what he had come to do. They speak of his power uh, his passion for us and his plan to redeem us, to redeem our people uh, to himself and what that looks like for the future. So miracles are a sign. And so we come to this miracle. And because it's a miracle, it's like a picture. So it doesn't really need much explanation. I don't need to spend a lot of time explaining this miracle. It's self-explanatory. It's quite easy. It's uh, interesting and it's easy to understand. It's called, it's actually it's a, a misnomer, it's entitled The Feeding of the 5,000. Uh, but we're told in the Gospels it was 5,000 men who were fed. Probably the groups were split up into men and women and children. And disciples probably got fed up after counting 5,000 men. And they stopped there. It probably was 10 to 15,000 people would have been there. So it's, the title of it is maybe a misnomer. But it's, it's interesting because it's in all four Gospels. Do you know the only other thing that's in all four Gospels? Well, the death and resurrection of Jesus. But this is in all four Gospels, uh, which suggests to us it's a fundamental miracle. It's important, and it's just something very significant to say to us. And uh, Jesus comes to uh, perform this miracle on the back of sadness and grief and sorrow. His cousin has died uh, brutally. Uh, his head has been cut off. Herod has cut off his head because of... Uh, his uh, faith and trust and belief in God, John the Baptist. So he comes into the situation. We're not told that here. We're told that in one of the other Gospels. But we come here and uh, 
He has this huge crowd following him. And he is compassionate on them. He loves them. Uh, he is concerned for them. We're told in Mark's gospel that they're like a sheep. They're like sheep without a shepherd. He wants to teach them. He wants to care for them. And he loves them. And uh, he wants practically to look after them. So he feeds them. He sees the need for feeding. And he throws out this challenge to his disciples. You know, have you got the bread? Can you buy the bread for this? And feed all of them. And the disciples say, no way, this is impossible. You can, we can't possibly do that. Uh, it would take eight months' wages to uh, be able to feed all of this people. Impossible. Uh, Jesus knows that. Uh, he's testing his disciples, we're told. And uh, then, knowing what he was going to do all along, he uh, outworks this remarkable miracle. He gives thanks. And uh, he uses the small offering of a boy who has a picnic with him, a puny picnic. Quite a big picnic for himself, it has to be said. Uh, but for ten to 15,000, not quite so much. Five loaves and two fish. And God, Jesus, breaks that bread, uh, gives thanks, breaks the bread, and uh, has the people sit in groups throughout the hillside, and they're fed without a riot and without all pushing and shoving, and they all have plenty to eat, and in the end there's 12 baskets left over, which Jesus says, gather up. Don't just leave it lying about on the grass. If you walk through the meadows this morning, that'd be a very opposite message uh, to come from Jesus, that he didn't leave everything strewn all over the place, like the city of Edinburgh just now, which is a waste and a mess. But he gathered it all up and used it. Feeding of the 5,000. So, what are we to be taught uh, as we take the living word of God and take it into our own lives and take it into our own hearts and apply it to our Christian lives uh, today? Well, can I go back to the sign uh, that we saw at the beginning? What, uh, these are at least a little bit of a sign towards I'm sure there's much more uh, in the miracle than that I'm able to bring out this morning. But the same is true uh, as we look at our own lives and as we read the scripture and think about it in uh, our own circumstances. Things need to change. So we need to see beyond the story itself. It's not just about bread being multiplied, fish being multiplied, God providing through Jesus Christ uh, for this crowd in a physical way. It's not simply about uh, satisfying physical hunger. It is much more than that. It's about recognizing a spiritual hunger and a spiritual need that only Jesus Christ can fulfill. Christ is offering more than bread and fish. Uh, He is speaking of something greater. And it's interesting, uh, we didn't read further on in the passage, uh, Jesus walks on water and then he makes these great claims to be the bread of life. And it's interesting, he speaks to the disciples and others, and he said, I tell you the truth, in verse 26, you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed a seal of approval. So, Jesus is applying it and saying it's not just about what you're going to eat and drink. And don't follow me just because of that, but recognize that I am the provider of the bread of life, which is eternal life. And so he's, re- he's pointing out that his miracles are much more than just uh, physical wonders. 
He's pushing them far beyond that. And I think sometimes in our lives, we need also to challenge ourselves about our attitude to Jesus Christ because sometimes I think we're missing the point because we treat him like our sugar daddy, that we want him to give us all the things that we want in this life, in material terms. I become a Christian because I want God to bless me and give me all that I want. And then when he doesn't give me all that I want, we go in the huff and we will pet lip. And we say, well, Jesus is no use because he doesn't give me what I want. He's my Santa Claus figure. And I want him. I want happiness in the same way that everyone else wants happiness. With a good bank account and with a great ambition and with power and with uh, uh, wonderful relationships and everything else at a physical level, at a material level. And Jesus is saying, these things are not unimportant But they are not primary to our being and our identity because our identity is deeper than that. And we don't use Christ as a sugar daddy to give us all of these material things in the the belief that that alone will make us content and satisfied and fulfilled as people, whatever these things happen to be. So sometimes we need to change our view of Christ and also recognize him for who he is. In verse 35, again, we didn't read this passage, but it's the application in many ways of uh, the miracle. He says, uh, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. He broadens, even at that point, he broadens it beyond the mere uh, bread image and uses drink as well. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. So, We recognize that that's why Jesus came. And we recognize that as part of the sign that Jesus is giving here. You know, John knows that. In John 1, 29, at the very beginning of the book, John the Baptist, before he's been beheaded, says, Behold, the Lamb of God. That Jesus has come for a specific purpose to be God's Lamb, to be God's sacrificial Lamb. And throughout the book of John, we have that being Uh, unfolded and revealed to us more and more. And that's very significant, uh, we're told, and I don't think it's uh, insignificant, that the Jewish Passover feast was near. That's the Passover feast that uh, worked itself into the Lord's Supper in the New Testament. So it was around that time people were thinking about the deliverance from Egypt, they were thinking about the Passover, and they were thinking about the manna in the desert, and uh, the provision from heaven that God brought down to the people, and then he goes on uh, to speak what are regarded as some of the, mo- the hardest words that he speaks, the most difficult words when he says that, you know, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't, be, you can't be part of me. And again, he's using symbolism and imagery pointing forward towards what we're going to be doing, the Lord's Supper, where he symbolically says that as we do this, we, we take him for ourselves. We, we eat him and we drink him. We uh, entrust our lives to him. So there's this amazing um, f- uh, fusion of ideas and thinking that comes into this uh, miracle. That he is the one, as the bread of life, that provides deep-seated and lasting satisfaction, purpose, and joy. Which we will not find if we are simply looking for it in this material world and in in its ambitions and in its physical pleasures and in its material blessings. However good and important, and I'm not saying they're not important, they're God's gifts. But if that is what all we're living for, we're going to run on empty 
because we recognize man, Jesus says it here, um, not here, elsewhere, man can't live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds from the mouth of God. Sin blinds us, sin deceives us, so that we can't see that and don't see that or choose not to see that sometimes, but we end up running on empty. God uh, is the, uh, Jesus is the bread of life, that is God's provision. And uh, he comes and he lives and he dies on the cross. Uh, the author of life uh, volunteers himself into death to take our guilt and the deception and the pain and the blindness that sin brings into our hearts. And by his power, he breaks it. He has risen again on the third day. And he uh, provides for us. Oh, how I enjoy preaching to the sound of music in the background. <laughs> Not. But anyway, that's life. And it changes everything, you know. It changes everything. God's provision changes everything. And he brings into our lives grace and peace and satisfaction and hope and belonging. Uh, it speaks of God's, the bread of life speaks of God's provision and also, of course, God's commitment. There's an interesting little verse, I mentioned it briefly, verse 6, um, where he speaks to Philip and asks, you know, why shall we, uh, where, or he says, buy bread for everyone. And Philip says, well, I don't know what to do. And then Jesus says, he asked this only to test him, for he, are, he already had in mind what he was going to do. And there's this divine sense of commitment that's implied and, and revealed in, in that uh, text that Jesus knew what he was going to do. He was, he was doing it for a purpose, and he had planned to do it, and it was clear in his mind. And you can take that and broaden that and be reminded of God's commitment in the plan of salvation. He knew what he was going to do. It was, you know, the Lamb of God, John 1. It's the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world, the sin of you and, and I in, in this 21st century uh, congregation. Deliberate, clear, focused, sacrificial love. Committed love for us. And so we see God's commitment in this picture of Jesus being the bread of life and he's saying to us please don't just live for your own material and physical appetites don't live just like that it, it, will, it will please and satisfy us for a while sometimes sometimes it will be a, just a, an aching and a gnawing dissatisfaction that is an, frustrating and sometimes we'll get exactly what we want but it won't satisfy us because that's the nature of it, isn't it? There's not many people who reach the top of their ambition tree or their wealth tree or their leadership tree and then sit back and say, I've made it. Everything's fantastic. I now understand the meaning of life. It generally isn't the case. But sin does deceive and blind us. So we recognize and see him as the bread of life. And... Uh, our need for change. And it may be that today we need to change our attitude uh, to Jesus Christ and to what we think about him in order to receive him. And that's the second uh, point or uh, sign, meaning, that I'm going to bring out today and with this we'll close. Our need of faith in Christ. Uh, our need for change and our need for faith in Christ. And 
I'm not just meaning that from the point of view of, of, of putting that out uh, to you if you're not a Christian here today and you need to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but I'm putting it to my own heart and to all of us as Christians because we have a tendency towards unbelief. We, we always have that tendency. We move towards unbelief all the time. It's a kind of predilection of our lives. We move that way. And it's a, an ongoing battle for us that, uh, that we're encouraged to go back to God and ask for his grace and strength. Very often we have a can't-do attitude in our Christian lives, but like the disciples. Jesus said, feed them. I see why? That's, you, you, that's impossible. You can't, you can't possibly expect us to do that. It's life of faith. You can't. And we can't do this. It's, it's impossible. We are always great. You know, the disciples who have looked out and said, how many, how many bread, fish? It can't be done. Mathematically, in every other way, it's impossible. At best, people will get a tiny little crumb and it will be a nightmare. We couldn't do it. And we're good at that in our lives. And I think we're especially good at that spiritually. Can't do. Now, Jesus is asking too much. It's impossible, this walk of faith. I need to go back and just feed my desires my appetites materially because what jesus asks is impossible and we're great with problems aren't we we're one we well up problem upon problem because that's kind of in our nature and it, it takes us to unbelief but he wants us to do the opposite of that and the miracles speak of that they speak of walking a different road and living a different kind of way that is not typical that's why they're remarkable that's why they're out of the ordinary That's why they grab our attention. And they're saying, this is how I want you to be. I want you to live with this attitude of change that comes from putting our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to react to these miracles with trust in Jesus Christ. There's no other way, he says, but to follow me this way and to receive me as Savior and eat and drink me, symbolically, taking me to yourself as Lord and Savior and God. And in our lives, you will find today, I, get, I don't know how many, 120 people or 115, 20 people here, more with the kids. Uh, each of you will have different issues and battles and struggles today. And as Christians, we'll have that. And some of you may be going through really difficult times. And it may well be that Jesus is doing what Jesus does, which is, as he said here, he was testing the disciples And he tested them. He already knew what he was going to do, but he was testing them because he wanted them to trust him to do what seemed ridiculous, what seemed impossible. He wanted them to trust in him that there was no other way. And Jesus is saying today, I want to be the bread of your life. I want you to rely and trust on me in your circumstances, which may be difficult. Because Jesus is more interested in our growth in grace to be like him rather than our comfort. He isn't generally here just to kind of rub us on the back and say they're there, though he is uh, the friend that sticks closer than a brother, and there are times when his comfort is unparalleled and significant and important. But often in our lives, uh, he is dealing with the, our desires and appetites which keep us from him and which we kind of use to move away from him and to distance ourselves from him. He bears no rivals. And he doesn't want us to be slaves to appetites which will not fulfill us and which will not bring us joy and contentment in our lives. So the, the life of faith is impossible. 
It's like a disciple walking and seeing a crowd of 15,000 and just a small picnic. That's what it's like. Uh, read, and probably many of you read a, a quote this week from Tim Keller. It's a very good one about trusting. He says, if you, if you have a God that's great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering, suffering in the world and in your life, that's my added but then you have in parentheses at the same time a god great and transcendent enough to have a good reason for allowing it to happen that you don't know indeed you can't have it both ways and the miracles point to that they say trust me with the impossibilities the difficulties the troubles and the struggles of our lives and we we come to him with trust. We participate in the Lord's Supper because we trust and because we acknowledge our trust and because we need reminded of that greatest miracle of all, the resurrection, and what that speaks to of the death of death and the life we have in Christ. So we respond uh, with trust and faith to Christ, but also with gratitude I think this is maybe a byproduct. Well, it's not really, but it's maybe not the main point of this miracle. Uh, but gratitude in our response to Christ is is important and significant. Uh, Jesus gave thanks. We're told before he broke the bread, he gave thanks to God as the provider of bread and fish, and he gave thanks to God because it pointed forward to the provision spiritually of what he was doing. And that's what grace does to us, doesn't it? It makes us thankful. It gives us gratitude to Jesus for what he's done for us, for his provision. We're taking part in the Lord's Supper. That's the Eucharist. That just means to give thanks. So the, the core of it is giving thanks. It's hard to take part of the bread and the wine and grumble and moan and complain and say God's miserable and rubbish and he doesn't do anything for me. But, and a thankless because he has provided so much for us. What provision we have as believers in terms of forgiveness and friendship uh, with God and life eternal, a new heart, the bad and difficult and troubling things in life being taken and molded and used, protected from, and ultimately going to live with him. Gratitude's a great thing. And I think, I I still think, an old-fashioned guy, it's a good thing to give thanks before food. Because food speaks about God's provision. Physically, in this world, but also pointing forward spiritually. It's good to give thanks. I think it's a good witness. If you go to McDonald's, it's a good witness to give thanks before you have, well, I don't know. Maybe you shouldn't give thanks before you have a double whammy burger or whatever it is. But wherever you go to eat, isn't it good to give thanks, to acknowledge the one who's given it, rather than just (laughs) straight into your food? And what it says, it just says, well, I'm just, this is just part of my material life. I'm just a physical person and I'm just eating. But giving thanks just is, it stops. It stops us and makes us think about who we are, why we are, and what is more important. There's more important things in our appetites, in our food, than our next meal. And, but yet he's a provider. So give thanks. Uh, but also to, and I'm nearly finished, uh, with obedience. The sign speaks about faith in Christ and uh, responding to him with obedience, you know. Uh, the disciples didn't have much to offer. They t- simply had to trust. 
But they didn't just trust then and sit down and do nothing. You know, Jesus at that point in the miracle didn't make the bread hover into the hands of all the people and the fish. He used his disciples to serve the people. He used the, the picnic of the little boy uh, to feed the people. So he used means to fulfill this great sign, this great miracle. And so in our lives, as we trust in him, grace isn't there to make us lazy or complacent or sit back and, you know, and just let Christ do everything. He uses us. And he wants us to follow him and obey him in word. You know, he's our daily bread. We eat him. We eat him, uh, his word. You know, his word is, is, is bread. And we eat that daily. We, we learn from him. We, we follow him. We serve him in word and in deed. So we follow even Jesus' example here. And this is where I think the practical element of the miracle outworks. It is a practical miracle as well. He did feed people who were hungry. He had compassion on them. He taught them as well. And we as believers should uh, mimic and imitate that in our communities and in our societies also. We should seek after equality. We should be looking for justice. We should be wanting the alleviation of poverty. We should feed the hungry. We should give the cup of cold water to those who need it. Not because that in itself will bring utopia or heaven or an end to suffering or problems, but because it points forward to what we believe Jesus will do in the new heavens and the new earth. And with that, I will finish coming to this last bit. Which the miracles speak? So I'm saying we, we do need practically to think about these things. I don't think it's right for Christians to just shrug their shoulders and say, well, the whole world's going to be destroyed anyway. It's going to be a new heavens, new earth. It doesn't matter about poverty or all of these things. There's always going to be injustice. When Jesus said, the poor you always have with you, he didn't mean to say, don't feed them. He recognized. But right through the Bible, there's this great strand of standing up for the oppressed, of standing up for the hungry, and standing up for the needy, and standing up for those who don't have and providing for them. And it's one of the great marks of the Christian church as it points forward to the grace of Christ. So, our need of faith. And faith that is obedient, great, full of gratitude, trusting, and hopeful. And with this I finish. So, the, the sign, the miracles speak of something in the future. They, speak, they point forward to the end of what Jesus came to alleviate. The end of suffering. The end of illness the end of death, the end of hunger, the end of sadness, the end of separation. All of the miracles point forward to that great new heavens and the new earth wherein dwells righteousness uh, when Christ returns to uh, bring his people into the new heavens and the new earth. And isn't it great in the Bible that that future kingdom is the images of what is it? It's a wedding feast. It's a feast. It's a wedding feast. That's what the new heavens, the provision that God makes, is. that's the image. It's one of abundance. It's one of fellowship with Christ at the center. Christ, the host, he's at the center. And that's what the Lord's Supper, and that's why it's so significant that we, we look to it today and enjoy it today, because it points forward to that. Uh, it's... There's a tree of life which goes through every year. Every month there's a river of life running through it, all symbolic and maybe sometimes real, but it's symbolic of, of 
opulence and of abundance and of satisfaction and of joy and of pleasure. You know, a wedding feast is when we, my niece was married in the summer when we were on holiday and uh, she, Kyrene and Andy got married in Dundee and it was kind of a taste of that. You know, we were with our family, we were with our friends, Christ was there, Christ got the glory, we ate together, we drank together, we danced together, it was wonderful. And yet imperfect, obviously, because it's in this world. And it, it ends, you know. What do we say? A really brilliant, fantastic wedding. Ah, oh, it passed so quickly. It's ended. But we have this a wonderful reality of provision to look forward to in Christ. If you only can see this life, you will not find the satisfaction and the life you were created to enjoy. C.S. Lewis says, don't let, don't let your happiness depend on something that you will lose. If you're living for this life and Christ is your appendix, then you'll probably find you're dull spiritually and don't have much of an appetite for him. Because he wants you to make him preeminent. Make him Lord of this life. So that we enjoy all that this life has to offer through the prism of the cross and through the prism of relationship with God without making them idols or putting them into places of preeminence or giving them uh, tasks that they simply can't fulfill. Money, wealth, power, relationship can't provide what you need and what I need. Only Christ can do that. Life and life to the full. And we celebrate and rejoice that truth and that hope as we move into our communion this morning. Let's bow our heads and uh, pray together. Lord God, uh, we ask and pray that you would bless us. That you would bless us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together as it points forward to the wonderful uh, marriage uh, feast, uh, marriage supper of the Lamb. And as it reminds us of our personal responsibility to uh, trust in you by eating and drinking personally, but also of this wonderful community, uh, uh, this family, this body, this people to whom we belong, that we are moving forward together uh, towards this great future. And we pray your blessing on us as we, we do so. We pray for your help and for your guidance and for your hope and for your joy and uh, for your love uh, to keep us and to protect us. Uh, Lord God, we ask these things and seek your blessing on us in Jesus' name. Amen.